If you would, this morning, turn back with me to 1 Timothy, the fifth chapter. First Timothy chapter 5, Paul writes in verse 17, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. For the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Against an elder receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Them that sin rebuke before all, that others also may fear. As I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels, that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins, keep thyself pure. Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Likewise, also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they are they that cannot otherwise be hid. Here the Apostle Paul, as we saw last week, he addresses how we're to treat older men, older women, younger men, and younger women. He says older men were to treat as fathers, being very careful how they are rebuked if necessary. He says the younger men were to treat as brothers, older sisters as mothers, and younger as sisters with all purity, meaning as a minister especially, being very, very careful how uh, they are treated so that obviously no uh, criticism could come to the man of God. Then the rest of the chapter before verse 17, the apostle addresses how the churches will take care of widows within the congregation, uh, which ones can come under the financial care of the church and which ones cannot. Here the apostle, though, he goes back to the term uh, elder, but he uses it in a different context than he does in the first part of the chapter. In the first part, when he says elder, he just simply means older men. But here when he uses the word elder, he is speaking of those who are ministers of the gospel. And we know that by, letting us, uh, by telling us those who labor in the word and doctrine. These are men who are preaching the gospel. So Paul starts out, he says, let the elders that rule well. Now that tells me there's elders that do not rule well. He says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor. A widow indeed was to be honored, meaning she was to be financially provided for. But here Paul says the elders that rule well, they're to be counted worthy of double honor. In other words, there would probably be more financial care be given towards the man of God than you would a widow in the church, um, especially if you've got a man like myself that has a family to take care of. Uh, their financial needs are greater, most likely, than uh, the care for a widow. But anyway, he says, let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. A man of God who teaches the word of God, the word of God tells us he is to be honored, and the way he's to be honored is to be taken care of. Now, obviously, every church has different abilities in what they can do for a man of God. But every church ought to have the same willingness to take care of the man of God. Our abilities are going to be different. That's obvious. A, a church with 100 members can obviously do more than a, a church with 25 members. That's just simple mathematics. Um, and uh, so we need to take that into consideration. But every church ought to have the desire to take care of the man of God. And the apostle is going to let us know from the Old and New Testament 
that there are rules set forth by God for the care of his ministry. He goes on to say, for the scripture saith, he says, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now, the Apostle Paul has just quoted from Deuteronomy and also the Gospel of Luke. And I bring that out because the Apostle Paul is letting us know that as far as he's concerned, Deuteronomy and Luke are both the Scripture, whether Old or New Testament. Paul would say all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. So Paul says that which was handed Moses on Mount Sinai, that was Scripture. He said, but also what was given to the beloved physician Luke uh, to record about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Luke is also Scripture. And so it's important for us to embrace both the Old and the New Testament as the Word of God. Our Articles of Faith state that, that we believe that the Old and New Testaments are the inspired Word of God. And not only are they inspired, but we believe they have been preserved from the time that they were written down to our present generation. And we as primitive Baptists believe that the uh, word of God has been preserved for us in the form of the King James Bible. That this is the word that we are uh, to use in the house of God and in our homes for uh, reading and understanding the word of God. So again, the apostle says, the scripture saith, and it says it in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4. And also in Luke chapter 10, verse 7. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 25, it's literally talking about an ox. He says, you're not to muzzle an ox who's treading out the corn. The ox had a job. And he says, as that ox does that job, if the ox wants to reach down and take a little corn along the way, obviously that ox has to be strong. That ox has to be able. He says, so you don't muzzle him. You make sure his son would be very greedy and would want to muzzle that ox so that he would not be able to take up any of that man's harvest. And the law says that is sin, that is wrong. Now Paul brings that to the New Testament, says same thing for the man of God. The man of God is not to be muzzled. Now, that, now, obviously, he's not saying muzzled to the point that he doesn't speak. He's saying here he is not to be muzzled in the sense of uh, so restricting his life uh, in the sense of not taking care of him financially that he is not able to preach the gospel. I have sadly known men that obviously had to work secular jobs, and in that they, from time to time, were even working on Sundays and were not in the house of God where they should have been. That should never be. I've even told one man one time, I said, you need to quit that job. Well, I need the income. I said, you need to just trust the Lord that he'll provide another job with other income uh, so you're in the house of God on Sunday. I said, how in the world can you uh, try to exhort others to be in the house on the Lord's day when you're not even there yourself and neglecting to preach the gospel? But part of that fell back on the church because he was muzzled in the sense that he was not able to live by the gospel. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 that uh, God has ordained that they that preach the gospel should live of the gospel. That's what God has ordained. That's the way that God has said it. In fact, the Apostle Paul would say to the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians, says, what is it that you were inferior to the other churches? He says in this, that I was not burdensome unto you. Then he says, forgive me this wrong. See, Paul knew the church of Corinth, they were a very wealthy church, but he did not want them claiming uh, any kind of rights over him by their financial support. And Paul looked back at that and said, you know what, I was wrong for not being burdensome. But then he also understood that their attitude towards the ministry was not right. There also in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, the apostle Paul will make it clear that the man of God who preaches the word of God, if he sows to us spiritual things, 
It's no great thing if he reaps our carnal things. That just is how it works out. If the man of God preaches the gospel to you and you receive a spiritual blessing from that, your responsibility in turn then is to financially take care of that man to the best of the church's ability. Anyway, the apostle again, he says, the scripture saith, thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Again, this comes from Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, the Lord Jesus Christ is commanding his apostles as they're going to go out and preach they were to go by two, and they were to go into homes. But as he says, as you go, you don't go from house to house. And the point that Jesus is saying is that if you find a home that's willing to take care of you, he says, you don't need to try to go from home to home to home to even add advantage financially to yourself. He says, you stay in that same home where they're providing for you. And then he does, in that verse, he says, the laborer is worthy of his hire. Now here the apostle quotes it a little differently. Here he says the laborer is worthy of his reward. Jesus said the laborer is worthy of his hire. Either way, the apostle and the Lord Jesus was teaching that it's the responsibility of the hearers of the gospel to try to provide for the man who's preaching the gospel. It's a very simple rule. He says again, the scripture saith, Thou shalt not muzzle the ox that treadeth out the corn, and the laborer is worthy of his reward. Now that all circles back again to verse 17 for those who rule well and they who labor in word and doctrine. Then he says in verse 19, don't worry, we're not going to stay a lot on financial support of the ministry. You all do a very fine job with that. But it does need to be taught. It is the word of God. Anyway, verse 19, though, he says, against an elder. We're still talking about the man of God. This is talking about your pastor. This is talking about the leaders of a congregation. He says, against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. Again, notice it, against an elder. If there's any complaint to be made against the pastor of a church, it cannot rightfully, biblically, be brought before the church body unless there are two or three witnesses. Now, not one witness that has spread the gospel to a couple other people, but two or three people have had to observe, witness, whatever wrong this man has done. Say, well, Paul, you're a little strict there. No, there is, he's going to come back and let the church know there is a way to address a man who's wrong. He says, but before the church can, and this is no different than it is for you. Because according to the gospel of Matthew chapter 18, if you've wronged somebody, what's supposed to happen? That person is supposed to come to you and tell you your fault between you and them alone. And hopefully, the person who's been wrong comes to the person who did the wrong. The person who did the wrong says, you know what, I'm sorry, I, I know I did wrong, I, I apologize, and I'll do my best not to do that again. And he says, and thou hast gained thy brother. He says, if that doesn't work, what do you do? You take two or three, and you go again. But before it can go to step three, before the whole congregation, there's that middle step. So what? So that it is established at the mouth of two or three witnesses. So there's no higher standard uh, for the man of God than there is for you before something comes before the house of God. There has to be two or three witnesses to the event in question. So Paul says, against an elder, receive not an accusation, but before two or three witnesses. So why then, if the rule is there in Matthew 18 that should apply for us all, why does Paul uh, put a spotlight on it, if you will, for the man of God? The reality is that people in leadership are going to be criticized. That's just the way that it is. And if you want to be in leadership, just expect criticism to come. 
And if you want to be in leadership, you better get a thick skin because it's going to happen. And sometimes people are going to criticize you on things that you think are so ridiculous you can't even believe that they would conjure up in their minds to be critical of that thing. Sometimes the criticism is going to come from uh, quarters and angles that you would have never even contemplated that they're going to come from. But it's going to happen. I've been preaching the gospel for well over 20 years now. And I've had criticism. It's come my way. Some of it was justified. Some of it was not. Uh, and it just goes with uh, the territory. And as my great-grandmother taught me when I was younger, uh, when criticism came my way and I was whining to her about it, she said, honey, you just need to consider the source. That was always her recommendation about criticism, consider the source. I've tried to put that into practice throughout my life, consider the source. And a lot of times as I sit back and I consider the source, I think, well, number one, the source is unreliable. Or maybe the source is not somebody, you know, that I'm really too concerned about what they have to say about the matter anyway. Uh, and so that has been very helpful advice in my experience, whether it be here in the house of God or even in our lives just in the world, is I just consider the source. And a lot of times somebody who will criticize someone without justification, obviously they're not to be considered. Uh, just, just miss that and, and move on. So here the apostle, though, he does tell Timothy, here is the rule regarding the man of God, because Timothy, if you're going to be in leadership, there is going to be criticism that's going to come your way. It's going to happen. He says, but the church must know that before an accusation can be received against an elder, there must be two or three witnesses. Not again two or three that have heard the gossip about it, but two or three that have actually beheld uh, the event or whatever has happened in question. And so as a church body, we have the obligation, if somebody is going to criticize the man of God, that first say, well, are there two or three witnesses to it? Well, no, okay, then it can go no further. It stops right there. I was reading this week about this, and Charles Spurgeon had a practice. Uh, you know, Charles Spurgeon uh, pastored in London, England. Uh, a Metropolitan Tabernacle was the name of the church that he served, and it was a very large church. Thousands of members. I mean, probably outside of the days of the Acts of the Apostles, probably one of the first, uh, I guess, modern-time uh, megachurches. Literally thousands of members. And um, now he held to some things that I don't agree with, but he was very effective in pastoring in many ways. And he had a rule that if somebody brought gossip to him, this is how he would respond. He said, well, I have a very poor memory, and I have to engage with a whole lot of folks. And since my memory is so poor, and I know that what you're saying is so very important, I would like you to write that down and then sign it for me. Uh, so that I'll, I'll have that so that I can remember it. Well, you know, he, he said that that never one time was complied with. Not one time did somebody actually write it down and sign their name to it. Why? Because they realized what they were doing was wrong. That was a very skillful way to handle gossip, was it not? I mean, that put an end to it right there. They recognized uh, that he was not going to put up with something like that. And neither should we. Uh, and that doesn't, it's not just for the pastor that we should have that rule in place. Matthew 18 is very clear uh, that if there is wrong done, we're supposed to go to the one who did the wrong and we're to tell them that between you and that person alone. Jesus put that word alone in there for a reason. Uh, it is supposed to remain anonymous. Uh, the whole reason for that is so that hopefully if that person repents of what they've done is wrong, the, the, the wrong they've done, it doesn't spread. That doesn't uh, tarnish their name because we all are human beings. We all have the fallen nature of Adam and we are going to do wrong. That's the reality. 
But only as a child of God who loves the Lord and has been tendered by the Spirit of God, when somebody comes and tells us what you said offended me, we hopefully will be pricked in our heart and our conscience uh, uh, will deal us a blow and we'll recognize we've wronged that person and settle that with them and no one else ever knows about it. And then we all carry on and move on. Well, the same for the man of God. Do you know how many men have been brought down because gossip and rumors were received about that man, but there weren't two or three witnesses to it? I've known men that were brought down. There was a man that I knew very well late in his life, and he was a very humbled man. He had an experience in his early ministry. He pastored, a ch and the church was doing very well. And there was a young lady in the church that convinced another young lady in the church that they would bring a report to the, to the church that he had molested them. Totally conjured up. It wasn't true at all. But the church received it. And there were two witnesses. Actually, there weren't really two witnesses. There were two that had to, they, there needed to be another person involved. But, there was, but the church did not follow the rule. He was excluded. And when the children saw that, they confessed to their parents what they had done. And the man was restored, but that followed him the rest of his life. That so damaged his heart and mind that it just it weakened his ministry from that point forward. But had the church followed what Timothy is here told, that would have never happened. That would have been looked at. Now, I understand that the, the uh, accusation was a very strong one. And it needed to be looked into, no doubt about it. But they were very uh, harsh and too quick in their reaction. And if I recall right, those two young ladies were put out of the church and, and so they should have been. But anyway, so it is possible to destroy a man on an accusation that's just not true. Now, if there is truth to it, you have two or three witnesses. Notice what Paul says you do. Them that sin. The context is back to this, these elders. He said, them that sin, rebuke before all that others also may fear so that does not exempt me from church discipline i'm not exempt from i'm a member here just like anyone else who is a member here is there's no uh, greater rights that i have than you have and so if i do wrong there may need to be a public rebuke it might need to go to the point that i am removed from the ministry or the church may judge this is so much that i may need to be removed from the body that could happen. Here Paul says, them that sin rebuke before all. He says, and here's why, that others also may fear. That if you will put the man of God on trial, if it's done right, he says, hopefully this will instill fear in the entire church that we're to behave ourselves, not only in the house of God, but also in how we live in the world uh, in which we dwell. You and I are called to a standard by the Lord Jesus Christ as disciples to live greater than how this world lives. Uh, this world lives in darkness. They live in confusion. They live in sin and love to have it so. But that un, uh, should never mark our lives. Uh, we are called by the Lord Jesus Christ as believers uh, to a much higher standard than what the world uh, would call us to. And so all of us together ought to live in such a way that brings honor to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to live in such a way that men would see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. But if not, then we ought to rebuke those that do sin among the ministry, he says, so that others also may fear. And then notice what he says, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels. That thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. 
So here, Timothy is given a charge, and he says, I'm going to charge you before three witnesses. He says, Timothy, I just told you that before an elder can have an accusation against him, there needs to be two or three witnesses, and now what I'm about to charge you with, he says, I'm charging you with this with three witnesses as well. He says, I charge you before God, that's talking about the Father, who's the judge of all the earth. And Abraham said in Genesis chapter 19, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? <laughs> he will every single time. The, the judge of all the earth will always do what's right. You don't have to worry about whether God is going to make the judgment correct or not. You might have to go to a circuit court here in Hillsborough County and you don't know if that judge is going to do what's right or not. You may go all the way to the Supreme Court and we know they're not always right. Uh, uh, we've seen that. They've had to reverse judgments even at the Supreme Court level of our nation. And there's a few other laws I wish they would reverse, and hopefully they will. But anyway, uh, the one thing I can count on about God, the judge of all the earth, he always will do what is right. He says, I charge you before God, he says, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, your charge is given in the sight of God and in the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of his church, he says, and also the elect angels. That's interesting to me, that he would choose out the elect angels. Why not the spirit? I don't know, but he says there are three in heaven Three categories at least. God the Father and God his Son and the elect angels, those that kept their first estate. He says that I am charging you before them. He says that thou observe these things. He says, notice this, without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. It is our human nature to prefer one above another. The reality is there's people I like more than I like others. That's just, that's just how it is. But Paul is telling the man of God, but that should not be on display in the house of God. He said, you're not to prefer one before another. He says, and you're to do nothing by partiality. What does that mean? He says, you're not to be a respecter of persons. He said, last name shouldn't matter. Years of membership shouldn't matter. Personal friendship shouldn't matter. And, he, and that means putting one into the ministry, trying to help one above another, or laying hands, as he's going to go on and say, he says, lay hands suddenly on no man. In other words, you don't put a man into this office quickly. He said, and you certainly don't do it because you prefer him above one, and you don't do it because you're partial to that individual because of some standing they seem to have in your mind in the house of God. You know, the Apostle Peter, when he went to Cornelius and his house in Acts chapter 10, one of the very first things he said when he got to the house of Cornelius, he says, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. Why? Here was a, a, a Gentile that had called for the men of God to come preach the gospel. Now, if you recall the story in Acts chapter 10, Cor uh, uh, Peter did not want to go. We find that God came to him in a vision three times with a sheet let down from heaven, knit at the four corners, having all manner of unclean beasts. And God told Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter responds, says, not so, Lord, nothing common or unclean has ever entered into my mouth. And God says, what I have cleansed, call not thou common or unclean. And about that same time, there are three men knocking at the door. Three what? Three unclean men, three Gentiles, unclean in the mind of a Jew. You know what God was telling Peter on the housetop there? He says, I have cleansed these Gentile men. Because the Bible says that not only was Cornelius a man that feared God, the three men that he chose were pious, godly men. Those three men that went to retrieve the apostle Peter were godly men cleansed by God himself. 
They hadn't heard the gospel yet, but they were clean men. They'd been born of the Spirit of God, even though the gospel hadn't arrived yet. Cornelius had already been born again by the Spirit of God, even though the gospel hadn't come yet. Here was uh, Cornelius praying to God always. The Bible says that he was a man that feared God with all of his house to the point that even the soldiers and the servants in his home were taught to fear God. He prayed to God always. He feared God with all of his house. He was a pious, meaning a godly or an upright man, but he was also a man that did alms. He was a man that cared about the poor, but he did it privately. He didn't put it on display when he helped the poor. And so Peter is told, what God has cleansed, call not thou common or unclean. So when he gets down to the house of Cornelius, you know what Cornelius had done in that time that he had sent those three men? The Bible says he had invited all of his friends and near kinsmen, meaning his family that lived close by. <laughs> so that when Peter got down to the house of Cornelius, that house was full. You know what Cornelius, his attitude was? Well, if God is sending a message here that's good for me, it's good for my family and it's good for my friends and I want to hear it as well, them to hear it as well. That ought to be our attitude about coming to the house of God. And saying, what I'm going to hear there, I'm going to trust is from God and it's good for me. And if it's good for me, it's good for my family and friends. And so I'm going to ask them to go along with me to the house of God. And I love when Peter gets there. I love what Cornelius said. He says, we're all here. <laughs> I love that expression. We're all here. You know, not all of Little Union Church is here today. In fact, in 11 years of pastoring this, this is four Sundays. Today, it marks four years, uh, 11 years since I've been the pastor here. Uh, in 11 years, we've not had one single Sunday where we were all here. Hadn't happened yet. Uh, one of these days it might. I'm about like what Brother Ronald once said. If you ever see me get up here in the pulpit and I look out and I just fall over fainting backwards, you'll know it was because we were finally all here. <laughs> It's not happened one time yet in 11 years of being pastor. I'm trusting one time it will. Brother Ronald also said, one of them, he said, you'd think by accident every once in a while it might just happen. But anyway, he says, we're all here to hear all things commanded thee of God. He says, we're all here, but we're all here because we want to hear what God has commanded you to speak to us. You know, that ought to be our attitude when we come to the house of God. I'm here because God's commanded me to be here. God has blessed me here. God has walked with me here. And, yeah, I love to really hear about the doctrines of grace. I love to hear about heaven and salvation. But you know what? Sometimes the pastor, he does need to talk about caring for the widows or the qualifications for the offices of the church or how it is that we're to deal with conflict in the house of God or financial support of the church and the ministry. Those are things that need to be taught as well because they're in the word of God. And they need to be taught. And even though that may not be the thing that I really want to hear today, my attitude needs to be I'm going to trust that what's on his mind, God has placed there. And I'm here to hear whatever God has commanded him to tell me. That ought to be our approach when we come to the house of God. So Peter, he says, I perceive that God is no respecter of persons. The apostle Paul, he found that out in his own experience when you look in the book of Galatians chapter 2, he says um, he had brought Titus into the ministry with him. God had obviously called him. He says, but here came Titus. He says, who was with me being a Greek. The Jews tried to compel him to be circumcised. He says, and that because of false brethren unawares brought in who came in proudly despised our liberty which we have in Christ Jesus that they might bring us into bondage. You know, Paul had commanded Timothy, who was a Jew, to be circumcised so that Timothy would be received by the Jewish believers. 
This man was a Greek, though, so Paul was not going to put the same order on him. He says, to whom? He says, we gave, no, we gave place by subjection. No, not for now. He says, here were these legalists came in trying to put a rule on Titus that was not according to the word of God. He says, we didn't give them place not for an hour. In other words, we just gave them no opportunity. He says, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. He says, but of these who seem to be somewhat. In other words, the ones who tried to give the rule. He said, they seem to be somewhat. In other words, in some men's mind, they were really important. He says, who seem to be somewhat. He says, whatsoever they were. He says, it maketh no matter to me. God accepteth no man's person. So Paul said, here they came and they tried to put a rule on Titus. And he said, no, I wasn't going to let them. He said, I didn't give them place, not for an hour. He says, and they seemed to be somewhat. He says, but what they were didn't matter to me. He said, that didn't matter at all. See, Paul had been before kings. Paul had been in the, uh, in the Sanhedrin court. He had gone before the high priest. He had lived among great men. So great men did not impress the apostle Paul. Uh, Paul didn't care about that. He says, they might be somewhat among some. He said, but that didn't matter nothing to me. He said, I didn't care a bit about that. He said, because God is not a respecter of persons. God, God is not concerned whether you're wealthy or poor. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter what name you were uh, given when you were born, meaning what your last name is. None of that matters when it comes to the house of God. We're all on the very same level. From the wealthiest to the poorest, from the ones that seem to have a high station of life to the lowest esteem in this world, when we come to the house of God, we're all on the same level. The Bible tells us that in the Lord Jesus Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female, neither bond nor free. The Lord doesn't take all that into consideration. You know, we classify people. The Lord doesn't like we do. Uh, you know what the Lord cares about? Whether we're his or not his. And if we're his, here's something else he cares about. Whether we're doing his will or whether we're not doing his will. That's really all it boils down to. So again, the apostle tells Timothy, you're to do nothing by partiality. He says, God is not a respecter of persons. And if God is not, neither should we be. You know, James was taught, or James did teach, that if somebody came in and they had costly array, they were to be honored no more than a poor man that came in that would, might come in in rags. The Lord also taught, he didn't really have a lot of concern about when you came into the church. I've known some old Baptists even that thought they had a higher place in the kingdom of God because they've been there longer. You remember the parable about, a parable about the man that had hired men and some started in the very early part of the day and some come in at the very last hour and yet at the end of all that when the Lord got ready to pay them, they all got the same amount. The one that had been there all day long, of course, got very upset about that. But, you know, this is the Lord's house and it's the Lord's choice to bless his people how he wants to. And just because you've been here longer doesn't mean you necessarily are owed more blessings. Uh, so even being in the house of God for a longer time doesn't give you a higher place in God's kingdom. Anyway, he goes on and says, you're to lay hands suddenly on no man. That means, Timothy, you need to be careful about who you would put into this office. Don't be in a rush about it. One of the things I was taught by our, my pastor before I was, he said, you know, you can rush a man into the ministry and destroy him. You can delay it, and it's not going to hurt him. 
And that's really true. I mean, I guess you could delay it too long, but I would rather be a little slow as a church body and putting a man into the office of elder or deacon than to rush into it and then realize, gracious, we made a mistake. And he's going to, let's skip verse 23 for a moment, and we'll come back to it. It does tie into what Paul is saying. He says, lay hands suddenly on no man, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Keep thyself pure. So what he's saying is, Timothy, there needs to be time for a man who is going to preach the gospel for his life to be displayed so that hopefully the church will see that he is not a man living in sin that's been uh, kept under the rug. He says, otherwise, he said, if you lay hands suddenly on him, he says, you're going to be a partaker of his sins. He said, you're to keep yourself pure. Verse 24, he says, some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Verse 23, 4 just simply means some men, you're going to clearly know what they are. Some men, you're not going to know for a while. Some people, what they're doing is going to be so transparent, you're going to know right off that they're openly sinning. He says there's going to be some other folks that are going to be doing stuff and they're hiding it and you're not going to know it for a while, but just be patient because it will out. I try to live by that precept. Just wait a little while. Sometimes we might want to rush to judgment, maybe even on past experience that we've had with people, but the best thing to do is simply wait. We don't know how the Lord has worked in somebody's life. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. If they are expressing to us a desire to serve the Lord, a desire to preach the gospel, and a desire to live a life better than maybe they have in the past. Give them the opportunity to do so. Uh, give them a little rope, if you will, as a saying, and let them either uh, prove themselves or hang themselves. Uh, uh, give them that time and give them that space because they may be being honest with you, and you cannot judge uh, the thoughts and the intents of the heart. We can't do so. That's not naked and open to our eyes. It is naked and open before God. He sees that. He knows. And he will reveal it. According to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he makes it clear that all of our works shall be manifest. The day is coming that everything that we do is going to be uh, put out to show. He says, every man's work, verse 13 of chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, says, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it because it shall be revealed by fire and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is now paul has just said he says we've laid a foundation he says and i'm a wise master builder he says and another buildeth there there on he says let every man take heed how he buildeth thereupon how you and i live our lives is adding to the house of god and it's either adding things that are precious or things that are worthless. One of the two. And he says there's coming a day. That our works are going to be revealed. He says if any man build upon this foundation. Gold, silver, precious stones. Wood, hay, stubble. Two categories there. Gold, silver, precious stones are things that will last. Wood, hay, stubble are things that are going to be burned up. He says every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it. There's coming a time. It might be today, it might be tomorrow that the Lord will come and prove our work. And if our work has been that which is beneficial to the house of God, it'll stand. If it's not, it'll be burned away. The Lord will reveal our lives. Now that's true if we're doing what is right. Because he says in the next verse, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, the last verse of the chapter, verse 25, he said, Likewise also the good works, the same as the bad, is the same with the good. Also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they... 
that are otherwise cannot be hid. So if folks are coming into the house of God, I think we, as the house of God, have the obligation to receive them for what they say and then give it time, and time will bear out. The Lord will reveal. The Lord will show. The Lord will open. The Lord will make manifest. Again, I can't see into the hearts of men. I cannot perceive what their thoughts are, what their intents are, what their motivations are. Say, well, I know that person pretty well. Well, yes, you know who they were, but do you know how the Lord has dealt with them? I don't. And so since I don't always know those things, I just need to wait. But the Lord will reveal it. Again, he says in verse 21, some men's sins are open beforehand, going before to judgment, and some men they follow after. Just wait a while, it will show. He says, likewise also the good works of some are manifest beforehand, and they that are otherwise cannot be hid. Now let's circle back to verse 23. He says, you're to keep yourself pure, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. Apparently, Timothy not only had a health issue, but he was very conscientious of doing what was right in his life. So the apostle has just commanded him, you're not to lay hands suddenly on no man. He said, Timothy, don't, don't be fooled. I'm not saying Timothy was, but he might have been a little naive. And so Paul is letting him know, Timothy, here is the rules about putting a man in the ministry. But he says, even that, don't do it too quickly. And then he, he goes on to say, if you do, you're going to be partaker of other men's sin. He says, but rather you're to keep yourself pure. And then he says, drink no longer water. Now, we all realize, I think, that in that day and time, people didn't have reverse osmosis on their uh, faucets. Uh, there wasn't uh, water softening systems, all that. They did not live in the best uh, situations as far as sanitation goes. Now, if they had followed what God had told them in the Old Testament, they would have been fine, but they didn't always, and so the water in that day and time was not always safe to drink. We've been in some places on cruises, I don't dare drink the water. Uh, I just won't. Uh, it may be fine, may not be fine, I don't know, but there's bottled water on the boat, I'm going to take that. Uh, I'm going to trust it more, although you can't trust that all too much because lately I've seen in the news where some of that's been recalled because of some problems. But anyway, he says, uh, drink no longer water. He says, but use, notice this, a little wine. Uh, a little wine. He says, don't go beyond what you should with this. He says, you're to use a little wine for thy stomach's sake. And I, You know what Timothy was doing? Timothy, I'm sure, knew that the, the water he was drinking was not good for him, but he did not want to be accused of doing wrong, so he would rather continue suffering with that stomach issue than to drink a little wine and be accused of being given to wine. He wasn't being given to wine. Paul says, you're to use a little for thy stomach's sake and thine often infirmities. So it tells me that Timothy was very conscientious of doing what's right, and that's what you want in a man of God. A man who's very conscientious of doing what's right. Sometimes, though, you can be so conscientious of doing what's right, you hardly do anything. Uh, you know, sometimes there's a time to move forward, a time to go, and that's what Paul's basically telling him. He says, yes, Timothy, you're probably a little naive. Here's the wisdom that you need to behave yourself in the house of God in such a way that brings honor to his name. And here's the way that you bring men into this office. Here's the way to use care. Here's the way to use wisdom. Here's a way to use it so that God is honored, God is glorified, Christ is honored, the kingdom is furthered, and you prevent yourself of being partakers of other men's sins. Again, he says, some men's sin, will close that out, he says, are open beforehand. It's clear before. It's already known. 
He said, but there's other, they're able to hide it well. And there's other people that have done right, and that's clear. That's been seen. And there's other people that maybe you haven't seen their good works yet. But again, we're to use these rules. We're not to use partiality, and we're not to prefer one over another. You know, some, especially in politics, I hadn't heard this in a long time, but I used to, I remember we had a president back in the 90s. <clears throat> I won't say his name, but you know it if you were around. They got himself in a lot of moral trouble. And it was all over the news. And I'll never forget members of his party getting on TV, quoting. Now, they couldn't have told you if they, life was dependent on it, where this verse was from. If you'd have said, give me book, chapter, and verse, they couldn't have told you. But they were on TV. I remember this very well. They were on television saying, judge not, lest you be judged. You know, the Bible says that. Yes, it does. I know it says that, and I can tell you where. Uh, the Bible does say, judge not, lest you be judged. Seventh chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. But that's verse 1. Read the next verse. The next verse goes on to say, but what judgment you use, you're to use righteous judgment. You know what that tells me? There's a right way to judge and a wrong way to judge, but the world doesn't want to be judged at all. That's one of the big reasons that a lot of people don't want to believe in God. They realize that he's the judge of all the earth. There's something that even in the unregenerate man, because he's been created by God, according to Romans chapter 1, they realize that there is a creator. They realize there's someone they're answerable to, even though they don't want to answer to him. And they don't want to be judged. They don't want God judging them. They don't want you judging them. They don't want anybody judging them. The reality is, is God is always judging. God is always trying. Uh, God is always seeing what is right and what is wrong. And you and I have the responsibility uh, to do so as well. The Bible says uh, that we're to prove all things. You know what that means? That means we're to judge all things, prove all things, and hold fast that which is good. Uh, so you and I have the responsibility to judge, but we're to do so biblically. We're to use righteous judgment just as the Lord does. Are we going to make mistakes along the way? We certainly will. But if we will do our best to try to follow the biblical pattern, follow what the Word of God teaches, not put one above another, I like that person more, or that one's in my family, they've been here, don't use any kind of rules except the rule of the Word of God. And hopefully we'll all come to the right conclusion when judgment must be made. And the reality is, from time to time, we as the house of God, we must make judgments. And as harsh as it seems to people when we have to, it's a reality, or before long, look at what the Lord told the churches of Asia in the book of Revelation. There were some that were putting up with ungodliness and sin. And the Lord let them know if that continued on, that he was going to come not long time, not here after a while, he says quickly. And he would remove the candle, he would remove the life source of that church, and that church would be no more. So there's a responsibility that we are given, but yet there's also a rule book of how we're to go about it. So that we do not treat one family different than another, one group different than another. Uh, none of that should come into the house of God. When we come here to this place, we're going to always remember we're all on the very same level. And the expectations that the Lord has for you are the same that he has for me. And it always amazes me what folks think that there's a different set of rules for the preacher than there is for everybody else. I haven't found that in the word of God. 
Because everything I look at in 1 Timothy chapter 3 about my qualifications, I can go to scriptures all the Bible and show where every member of the church would live up to those things. Where it talks about the judgment of the man of God, you know what? I can go to Matthew chapter 18 and see that same judgment applies for you as well. So anything you would like to put on me, <laughs> I can go and find in the word of God where it's required of you as well. I don't have a separate set of rules than what uh, any member of this church has. But also because I don't have a separate set of rules, I'm not exempt from them either. And that's the point that Paul is making to the man of God here, is that the man of God is not exempt. There's care to be taken when the accusation comes. And if it doesn't come the right way, the church isn't to receive it. If it comes the right way, it's verified. It's to be taken care of just like it would in the life of any member of the body. And those things are to be addressed. And as Paul will conclude there, he says, but be careful about putting the men into this office to start with. Give it time. Let it be known by the house of God that the men that are going into this office are men that have good reputation, good report. And hopefully then we'll see that they're a benefit for many, many years in the kingdom of God and a blessing to God's people throughout the course of their life. May God bless you today as our prayer.